for your Bibles, let's turn back to Romans chapter 10. That's where we have been now for uh, quite a few weeks. Probably one of the greatest chapters in the Bible that talks about how you and I get saved. Come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I don't, when I witness to people, I don't ask them if they're saved. Uh, everybody has their own definition of saved. Uh, I really don't, uh, I don't ask them about where they go to church because church is irrelevant to your salvation. I, I've come over the years to learn that the question I ask people is simply this. And this is the question that maybe throughout this message today you'll want to ponder in your own heart. And I simply ask them this. If you were to die today, do you know for sure that you'd go to heaven to spend an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, if you don't know that, you don't have that question settled in your heart, it doesn't matter what church you go to, doesn't matter if you have the right Bible, nothing really matters if you don't have that question settled in your heart. And Romans chapter 10 is the great chapter that helps us focus on that and shows us quite a few things that we've learned. It shows us the transition of God taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And uh, we got down to around verse 13, and there was a, it says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how many times we've used that along with Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But last week, we looked at, once he says that, he asked four questions, doesn't he? And we pondered those four questions last week as we met together into the Bible. And the first question he asked after verse 13 when he says, Whosoever shall call shall be saved. Then he asked this, And how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Second question was, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Their third question was, And how shall they hear without a preacher? And the fourth question was, And how shall they preach except they be sent? Well, after last week you were here, you now know the answer to that, those four questions, don't you? The answer to those four questions of how will they hear, how will they believe, and all of that is simply you and me. That's how. God's plan we talked about last week of giving us a perfect example in the Lord Jesus Christ and then replacing Himself with you and me on planet Earth as sons of God, filled with the Spirit of God, having the power of God through the Word of God. And basically taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's the job that you and I are to do. I think last night that if you were here uh, in our, in our, uh, 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 in our uh, new members type uh, dinner we had last night, it was an incredible time. And I purposely had each one stand up and talk about how that they got to this church. And everybody said the same thing. And all through that conversation, I told you that there was something I wanted you to see that I think is the greatest aspect of our church. And every one of those people that got up came to this church because somebody in this church witnessed to them, told them about this church, told them about the Bible, and then brought them here. We have been talking a lot about, out of Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and this great study here of how God has prepared sinners and God has prepared servants. God, right now, in many people's lives, maybe you're in this room this morning, and you can't answer that question I asked at the beginning. You don't know for sure if you died right now, you go to heaven. You know what God's doing in your heart? He's preparing you for the message. He's preparing your heart to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know how you maybe got here today? 
uh, or maybe you were saved uh, in this church uh, a while uh, in the last month or so. You know how you got saved? You got saved because you were a prepared sinner, and God sent you a prepared servant. And the two met together, just like that story in Acts chapter 8 of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. And you brought them to a point where they could understand and hear the gospel. And that is the greatest single aspect of our church. I believe with all of my heart that we have so many of you who are working diligently to be that prepared servant. And because of your intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ and your attitude toward the Bible and your attitude toward this ministry and your attitude toward this church, God is using you and, and will use many of you. And, uh, you know, and don't be discouraged if you say, well, I didn't bring anybody in the last six months. Hey, not everybody does. Maybe you'll get into the next six months. But someplace along the line, if you do what the Word of God says, uh, you're going to bear that fruit. And the Bible says, by their fruits, uh, you shall know them. Now, today we're going to look at another great concept of our study in Romans chapter 10. And I think it's one of the most incredible studies in all of the Bible. Now, I want to read Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 again. And uh, we're going to focus on the last part of verse 15 today. Uh, we talked about this. These were the four questions were. But look at verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how now shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Father, for the time that we've set aside today to come to your word. I appreciate the singing this morning. I appreciate uh, uh, Roy and his song this morning, Father. And all those things were there to prepare our hearts for this very moment as we open up these sacred scriptures and let the Holy Spirit of God lead us and give us what He has for us. I thank you for last night. I thank you for what a joyous time it was of some 30 or 40 people. And all of them weren't even here, Lord, but the ones that were here, what a great time it was and a great time of rejoicing of what God has done uh, in our ministry. And Lord, truly, Your hand is upon this work. And uh, Lord, we just, we just want it to stay that way. We don't want to do anything humanly that would ever hurt and take the hand of God off what we're doing. Lord, we don't know what we're doing. We can't even give an ex explanation for the success other than God's promises in the Word of God are faithful and true. And we come to you today, Father, to ask you to open up our hearts. There might be someone here, Lord, that can't answer that question this morning about where they'd spend eternity. And I pray that by the time we're finished with this today, Lord, that you will speak in their heart, that Holy Spirit of God, you do the work that only you can do in their heart. And we'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to talk today out of verse 15. You know, there's all kinds of studies in the Bible. And I think many of the greatest studies in the Bible, you know, you talk about, we're going to study the tribulation. That's exciting. Somebody says, well, I want to study the rapture of the church. That's exciting. Somebody says, well, I want to study uh, the millennium. That's exciting. Somebody said, well, I want to study the second coming. That's exciting. But I've learned over the years that some of the most exciting things you'll study in the Bible are not the most glamorous things. You know, one of the greatest studies in the Bible that I'm going to talk to you about this morning is a study of your feet. Nobody's got beautiful feet that I've ever seen in my life. I don't wear sandals. You know why I don't wear sandals? Because I got the ugliest feet in the world. I ain't kidding you. I, don't, I, will, I wouldn't show them to anybody. I mean, Freddy Krueger's got better looking feet than I got. I, I just, I just I, you never see me. I, 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 and, but in the Bible, you want a tremendous study? Study feet. And it says down there in the last part of that verse, 
and it is so it is written. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And I want to talk to you about that. You know, fulfilling God's plan in your life is understanding, uh, you know, the aspect of being sent by this church uh, to, our, to your mission field. I said last week that most people think that the, the preachers are behind the pulpit and the missionaries are on the foreign field. And that's true in a sense because pastors preach and missionaries are on the foreign field, but we get the idea that because there's a guy behind the pulpit that preaches and we have missionaries out there in a foreign land that are missionaries, that somehow you're distracted from that. Let me tell you something. We already understand this, so I'm not going to belabor the point. If you're saved here this morning and you're in this church and you're saved, you're a missionary. And you're a preacher. If you don't understand that by now, by the time we've been in the Romans chapter 10, you're probably never going to get it. And uh, we get the idea that, uh, that uh, missionaries are on the foreign field and preachers are behind the pulpit. Every man and every woman under the sound of my voice this morning that's in this room that is saved. You are a missionary to wherever you work, to your neighborhood, to your family, to your friends. And you are a preacher and bringing them the gospel. And when you talk about feet, the Bible's filled with incredible studies. And you know, there's certain words or phrases that will always be key to those studies. And when you study feet in the Bible, first of all, when you find feet in the Bible, and I'll give you this for you Bible students, doctrinally, wherever you find feet in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, doctrinally, it'll always be a picture of the second coming of Christ and the millennial reign of Christ. If you go back in these verses like uh, you're going to find in Isaiah chapter 52 and Nahum chapter 1, and it's all built around uh, Zechariah chapter 14. In Zechariah chapter 14, it says this. It talks about the fact that when Jesus comes back, and in Zechariah chapter 14, it's almost a detailed account of the second coming of Christ. And when Jesus comes back, and this is the key point on the feet, when Jesus comes back, He comes back from the east, He comes into the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, he's sitting on this white horse. And at the Mount of Olives, he steps off that white horse. And the Bible says, when his feet, when his feet touch the Mount of Olives, it splits asunder. And when you're going to find feet in the Bible, doctrinally, doctrinally means prophetically, it's always going to be a picture of Christ's second coming and then on into the millennium. Because with those same feet, and when you read Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it talks about, And I saw a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, by which he should smite the nations. And he sets up a kingdom that is on, after righteousness and, and goodness and truth. And everything about it is, is the fact that God is now going to do everything in his governmental system that is right. And the feet picture the fact that he's carrying that into Jerusalem. He walks through the eastern gate. He walks into Jerusalem. And he sits down on the throne of God, uh, God in, in Jerusalem, and he's crowned the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And all the references to feet in the Bible, and your definitive passage on it, will be Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, where it says, How beautiful upon the mountains, those will be the seven mountains around Jerusalem, are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings and publish peace, and bringeth good tidings of good and publish salvation, and saith unto Zion, that's Jerusalem, Thy God reigneth. Now that passage shows you doctrinally that the feet of Christ in all of those passages will always be a reference to a second coming and Him going into Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1 says, Heaven is my throne, 
earth is my footstool? Where is the house that she built unto me? That'll be the millennial temple. And where is the place of my rest? That'll be Jerusalem in the millennium. And the picture is that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool is a picture of his feet being on planet earth and being under his foot, under his feet, under his reign, under his rule. And all of the time you're going to find those things where you're going to find feet. It's a tremendous study. I mean, from a doctrinal perspective, you'll find some of the greatest material on the second coming of Christ and insight into the millennial reign of Christ when you just study feet. And again, it talks about how beautiful they are. You'll always find the good tidings and publishing peace and bringing forth the tidings and salvation. Always be connected. Now, in an inspirational application, it's always a picture of you and me. Just as Jesus Christ, when He comes back, and He comes into Jerusalem, and He sets the world at peace, He brings salvation to the nation of Israel. He brings good tidings and good news that finally we have a governmental system that is going to be run righteously with no corruption in it. And if that isn't good news, I don't know what is. And he comes down and he sets that whole thing up in Jerusalem. Now, inspirationally, it's a picture of me and you, you and me, taking the great news of the gospel, taking the great news from the Bible, you have an absolute standard. Wouldn't you be thrilled today if you came to me with issues in your life or maybe you're facing down through life as a young person all kinds of bad choices, good choices, and issues you're going to have to deal with? Wouldn't it be a great thing if you could go to one source, one book, one place, and find every answer that you need about every decision you got to make and you never have to worry about making the wrong choice or having bad things in your life because of bad choices? If there was one source, wouldn't you grab that? Well, I got news for you. There is a source and it is the Word of God. And you and I, walking on our feet, carrying this book, telling others about God's salvation, telling others about all of the things that the Word of God does, Uh, to every corner of this planet. I've told you this before. The main difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is simply this. In the Old Testament, God had a fixed temple. That's what He's talking about there when He says, where is my house that you builded me? There was a fixed temple. It was in Jerusalem. And all the world came into that temple. They traveled from Africa. They traveled from Asia. They traveled from everywhere. And they came into that temple in Jerusalem, a fixed building. And it's a marvelous building laid out in Chronicles for you. And they came into that building, and they saw the glory of God, and they were overwhelmed by that glory. And in the Old Testament, the whole world went to that temple, a literal fixed building. Now, in the New Testament, it's different, isn't it? Bible says now that your body is the temple. And the glory of God is not in the walls or the texture or the holy things that they kept in that house. The glory of God now is what lives inside you through the Holy Spirit of God. And where in the Old Testament the whole world came to the temple, in the New Testament, we take our temple to the world. Tomorrow morning when you go to work, you're presenting the Lord Jesus Christ to your people you work with, to your boss, in your neighborhood to your friends. When they see you, it's just like going into Jerusalem in the Old Testament and seeing the glory of God. They knew there was something different about the building 
that housed the holy things of God than all the other established places in the Old Testament. And by the same token, inspirationally, your friends, your family, your enemies, everybody in your life ought to see the difference between your temple and everything else in this life. It's an incredible study. It talks about your walk with God. Feet in the Bible are a great study. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 16 talks about feet that, are, that, are, that run to do evil. A Psalm, a Proverbs chapter 6, verse 18 talks about feet running uh, uh, to swiftly to mischief. The uh, Bible talks about in, uh, in Jeremiah how that, uh, your, uh, there's a snare for your feet, how your feet can stumble, how your feet get stuck in mire. Why, we even when the Antichrist finally gets defeated in the book of Daniel, you know how it represents his death and his destruction? His feet, the smiting stone of Daniel 2, crushes his feet. You know why? Feet mean something in the Bible. Feet in the Bible from a doctrinal standpoint and Christ's side will represent his authority of taking the gospel. Inspirationally, it's your feet that gets you there. It's your feet that carry the gospel. And the Bible says that they're beautiful. Now that's why Romans chapter 10 verse 15 says, And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, and a quotation here is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, I, I told you last week, if you want the definitive passage on the Bible, on the gospel, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it talks about, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, uh, which you also received, and therein ye stand. Which uh, also you are saved, if you keep in memory, I have preached to you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, uh, which I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scripture. In other words, see the importance of the Bible? Without the Bible, it means nothing. The Gospel, the good news. What I'm telling you today is this. You and I were once guilty sinners. Maybe some of you are still a sinner. And the good news is, you don't have to stay a sinner. The good news is that Jesus Christ, the gospel, is He came down according to the Bible. He died according to the Bible. And then He rose again, but according to the Scriptures. And now because He died and buried and rose again, He'll give you and me the newness of life that you'll never have to die and you'll have an eternity with Him. That's the good news of the gospel, you see? That's the message that we preach. That's the message that we preach. Now, within your Bible... There's two great pictures of you and me in an inspirational application that is a Bible reference to our feet, talked about in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, of carrying the gospel to the world. Two perspectives. I want to talk to you about one of them this week, then I want to talk to you about the other one next week. Uh, the first one is at the day of salvation. The second one is after salvation as you prepare yourself for the spiritual warfare. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago that in the book of Galatians that Paul had true travails. He was talking about the Galatian church and the church at Galatia and he had two travails. Travail is a turmoil. Travail is something that you worry about. And he says, I have two travails over you. He said, I've travailed a second time is what he said. His first travail was he worried about the fact that they wouldn't get saved. And we all can identify with that. I probably, in most cases, most cases in this church, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. I'd say in most cases that there's probably most of you have somebody on your heart this morning 
that you know is lost that you'd like to see saved. And you have a burden for them. That burden is a travail. That burden is a travail. As a pastor, many times I know people when I talk to them and they come in and, I, and I've talked to people that came over to my home and shut down and they were as lost as they could be. And, you know, and, they, and I, I worried about them and I prayed for them and I travailed for their salvation because I don't want to see anybody uh, go, to, go to hell and spend an eternity. My whole life has been uh, uh, spreading the gospel of the good news. So there's a travail of lost people that, that Paul was telling that he felt about. But then he says, I travail over you a second time. And that second travail is after you get saved, fretting over people growing spiritually right. Because I know as well as I'm standing here that the devil's plan is real simple in your life and my life. It is so basic and so simple. It may be masked with a lot of shiny, bright things, but it is so simple. Plan number one, the devil wants to get your soul in hell. I don't know how else to say it. You know what? In all the new churches today and all the modern theology that goes on, they like to dress that up. Very frankly, I don't know how to dress that up. The devil wants to get your soul in hell. Yes, there is a hell, a burning hell, terrible place. Luke chapter 16. I mean, Jesus proked on it 20-some times in Matthew. There's a real burning hell, and plan number one is the devil to get you to go there. How many, how many don't raise your hand, but how many are you saved this morning? Well, if you're saved this morning, how, how many can you follow instructions? No, I'm just kidding. If you're saved this morning, if you're saved this morning, you beat the devil on that one. You did. And he ain't happy about it. Not happy about it. You know what the devil's second plan is? His second plan is this. Well, if I can't get you in hell and you do get saved, then I'll just keep you from ever growing spiritually. And maybe I'll lose you in, uh, from hell, but I'll gain your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your kids, and everybody else in life that if I keep you off task and off focus and keep you in the world, even though you're going to heaven, and you, but you never grow, I'll get all those other ones. He plays the odds. He plays the odds. And I travail as a pastor in both those areas. I travail for people who are lost. And I also travail for young Christians because I see how subtle it is. I see how, I've seen the destruction, how that God could take, a, a, you know, you get a young couple come in or a young single or somebody that comes in and it only it takes is, is some outward influence. I've seen people in churches that were saved people get hooked up with young Christians. And I say to myself, and what are you going to do? Go up and say, don't hang out with this person because they're going to, you can't do that. But in my heart, I travail because I know what's going to happen. That person is going to say, by their own example, they're going to draw that person away. And what would happen in a spiritual growth is going to be, is going to be, um, is going to be shut down because of the fact that, that of God's people. And it's a terrible thing and it's a travail. I want you to be saved, but then I want you to grow because God has a plan. He has something that he wants you to do. And the first thing we're going to look at is your shoes, your feet at the day of salvation. And then next week, we'll look at after salvation as you get into this fight and you take this thing on. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. I think Exodus chapter 12 is my favorite passage in the Bible. I call Exodus chapter 12 the gospel according to Exodus. Most people only think there's four gospels in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. But once we define the gospel from Corinthians chapter 15, and we know that uh, it's the pictures of death, burial, and resurrection of Christ according to the scriptures, you're going to find that there's all kinds of pictures of the gospel. I know, I know there's a gospel of 1 Kings. There's a gospel of, uh, of Genesis. 
There's a gospel in Joshua. In other words, there's stories in the Bible that when you read those stories by the events, the things that take place, and the people in those stories, they picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the good news, the gospel. And boy, Exodus chapter 12 was one of those places. Now let me talk to you about Exodus. I think Exodus is one of the greatest books in the Bible. I wish that I, wish that I had some people that were up to this speed because, uh, you know, most, we don't have a new members class, and I don't know that we'd ever have one. But if you want one book of the Bible, that would be an incredible book for all you new people or all you people who just get saved. If you would want one book, and I know you wouldn't think of that when you look at it because Exodus is just goes on. And look, it, 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 it's boring in some places, I mean, to tell you the truth, if you don't see it in the right light. But I don't know of a better book in the Bible that breaks down every aspect of what happened to you and to me before we were saved, when we got saved, and all the events that should be in your life after you get saved. Right up to getting into the ministry and being a missionary and being a preacher uh, of the gospel. You know how Exodus starts out? Sure you do. We've all seen Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. You know, I never saw the movie. I read the book. But anyway, you know how it works. They're down there in Egypt. They've been in Egypt for 430 years. For 430 years, the nation of Israel has been under the bondage of Egypt. And you know, if you know anything about the Bible, Egypt is a picture of the world. Pharaoh's a type of the devil. And it's a picture of God's people. You, it's a picture of God's people being put under, the nation of Israel, being put under the bondage of a literal nation that wanted to wipe them out and destroy them. And when you read that, incredible heartache. They have to make bricks every day. Bricks in the Bible are a picture of man-made concepts. You'll never find any altar or anything that God ever made that was ever made with bricks. He makes it with stone. You know why? Stone is God-made. Bricks are man-made. What are the nation of Israel down in Egypt doing? They're making bricks. They're making bricks to build the world system. And they're under tremendous bondage. They're slaves. Many of them, how many hundreds of thousands over those 430 years died as slaves? Malnutrition. Crushed in those big blocks that they were doing and moving and all of the things and literally worked to death. And yet you're going to find that that's a great picture of, of, of where you and I were before we got saved. You know what? Pharaoh made it as hard as he could on them. Even though they were working for Pharaoh, they were doing him the favor of slave labor. You know what? When they didn't do it fast enough, when they didn't jump high enough, when they didn't do all the things they were doing, he took away the straw that they had to have to make bricks. And then he required them to make the same amount of bricks with less material. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of you and me before we got saved. That's what the Pharaoh of this world, Egypt, the type of the world, did before you were saved. It puts you under tremendous bondage. It puts you under tremendous stress. You were going to live all your life, do all your stuff, your whole job to build what you thought was what was going to make you happy. Buying a big house, getting this, getting that. Building those bricks, making it bigger. And what did the devil do? The devil just spit in your face. The devil gave you every raw deal you could get. The devil made everything, and at the end of it, when you labor and you struggle, at the end of it all, when you have everything you think you have, what do you get? You die and you burn in hell for all of eternity. That's a great deal. That's a great package. That's what Exodus chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 picture. You can go through it. What happens? They cry out. 
The bondage got so great in their heart, they cried out to God and God heard them. Now, you know what God did? God sent him a deliverer, didn't he? God sent him a deliverer, Moses. I remember the time when you just couldn't take it anymore. Remember the time when the life got so overwhelming and so burdened and such a heavy thing on your heart and your mind? And I don't know what it was. It doesn't matter what it was. But you actually came to, I believe that many people take a gun or take poison or take this or that and kill themselves and end their life simply because they cannot go on with one more day of making bricks in Pharaoh's brickyard. Remember how it was? Remember when you first thought, oh, there's got to be a way. Where is the light at the end of the tunnel? Somebody says, here it is. And you ran down that tunnel only to meet a freight train coming your way. There was no light of Pharaoh's tunnel. The only light there will be will be that clock of light from heaven. When the Bible says, he was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And at some point in your life, if you're saved this morning, God sent you a deliverer. He sent you a prepared servant and told you the glorious news that you could get out of Egypt. I remember preaching one time, this has been years ago, People are weird. You know that? They really are. And I remember preaching one time, and I was preaching on John chapter 8, verse 44. It says this. Year of your father the devil, and the lust of your father as ye will do. Is the murder for me? You know that verse? And I was preaching on, if you're lost here this morning, and you're saved, your spiritual father and family is the devil. If you're saved here this morning, your spiritual father and family is God. And after I preached, a, a, a lady came up, and she was, she was hot. Not that kind of hot. She was bad. <laughs> you got to be careful what you say today. And, I, and she came up and she put her finger in my face. And she says, you know what? She says, I'm offended. And I said, well, I'm sorry. What did I do to offend you? And she said, she said well, you said, you said that, that she says, you said that I was in the devil's family. And I said, ma'am, are you saved? She says, no, I'm not. But she says, I, don't, I resent being told I'm in the devil's family. And she says, I want an apology. And I said, well, I don't, I don't want to make you matter, but I'm not going to apologize to you because of what I told you is true. But can I give you a little advice? I, too, one day was in the devil's family. And somebody pointed out to me. And what I did was I got offended, too. And I got so offended. You know what I did, ma'am? I change families. Amen. I'll offer you the same deal. She didn't take it, but what can I tell you? But I'm telling you, people are weird. They're nuts. And you go through all of these things in life, and then somebody told you there was a deliverer. And on that day in your life, you know what God did? Typically, God brought you out of Egypt. Now, I want to show you the gospel according to Exodus, and I'm going to go through this whole thing, but I'm going to focus on your feet. What you got to do with your feet the day you get saved. We're going to talk about a number of things here. Four things, in fact, but we got to go through this to get to them. All right, let's look at Exodus chapter 12. You all should have it now. If you don't have a Bible, look on with the person next to you. If they got a nicer Bible than you got and you're bigger than they are, just take it and say, I'm keeping it. <laughs> Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak you unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take them, every man a lamb, 
according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of his souls. Every man according to his eating shall you make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, of the first year. And you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it under the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the house wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh, and that night roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat it not of it raw, nor sod at all with water, but roast with fire his head, his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. And I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now that's a great path. That is probably, this is probably my favorite story in the Bible, because I relate to it so well. And some of you have been around for a while. I'm sure you're already picking it up. Some of you heard me lay some of this out before. Uh, maybe not quite the way I'm going to do it today. Uh, but uh, uh, you, we've been there before and we've talked about it. And most of you are familiar with Exodus chapter 12. But what a great chapter. Now keep in mind, this is Israel's salvation chapter. This is where God sends them to deliver. The deliverer goes before Pharaoh, works it out, goes through it, brings the plagues down. And in Exodus chapter 12, he brings them out. And the first thing that I want you to see, and we're going to come back to this at the end, that he brings them out of Egypt, a type of the world, by the blood of a lamb. By the blood of a lamb. Now, I want to walk you down through this, and I want to show you the parallels. If there's one book in your Bible, and now, if you get access to the website, it's on the website. When I did all the books in the Bible, get to Exodus, man. Go back there and get that book, Exodus. It'll change your perspective of where you're at if you're a young Christian or an older Christian. All right, now the first thing I want to bring to your attention here is found in verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the, in the midst of Egypt, in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, you know what he's doing here? He's changing the beginning of their year. Up to Exodus chapter 12, the Jewish year started in September with the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the beginning of their year. Now he's changing it. And he's saying, okay, basically, he's saying, okay, up to this point, your beginning of your year was in September at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we're going to change it. Now it's going to be at the Passover in April. And he's, going, he's telling them that we're going to change from the way it was to the way it is now. In other words, you know what he's doing? You know what he's doing? Israel's getting a new beginning. He's putting away the old year, and he's starting a new year. You know what happened the day you got saved? You got a new beginning. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Now, what kind of mind behind that Bible that wrote a story that took place 3,600 years ago? And in that story, you find every aspect. He said to them, you know what I'm going to do? When I deliver you and bring you out of Egypt, the type of the world, I'm going to make you something new. You're going to have a new beginning. And when you got saved, God gave you a new beginning. You're not the old person you used to be. Then why do you act like it? Why do you live like it? Why do you not see down inside you what changed about you? All right, next thing I want you to see is this. And oh, I love this. Look at verse 3, 4, and 5. 
and speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month you shall take every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let his neighbor next to him and his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall you make your count of the lamb. Your lamb shall be out blemish, a male. The first year you shall take it out of the sheep and of the goats. My, my, my. When I start reading that thing and I come down there, the first thing I see down there in verse, uh, in verse 3, when you come down through there, it says, you need a lamb. You need a lamb. You know what? If you're here this morning and you're lost and you can't answer that question, I can tell you in one word what you need. You need a lamb. That's what you need. You need a lamb. That's what I needed. That's what everybody in this room needed. And verse 3 says, a lamb. Look at verse 4. But not just any lamb will do. You need the lamb. You don't need Buddha. You don't need a Confucius. You don't need Joe Smith. You don't need the Mormons. You don't need this. You don't need that. You need the lamb. The Lamb of God that he's talking about here. What kind of mind behind that Bible says the first thing you need is a lamb? But you need the lamb. Look at the next verse. Oh, let me tell you something, my friend. Look at verse 5. You can need a, you know you need a lamb, and you can even find the right lamb. But until you take a lamb and get the lamb, you're no good till you make it your lamb. See that progression? A lamb, because that's what you need. But you need the lamb. But you need to make that lamb your lamb. Wow. What a, what a passage. What a passage. That's not all. That's not all. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says that, uh, that if, you don't, if the next house don't have enough to you, that you're to share the lamb with your neighbor. Have you done that? Do you share the lamb with your neighbor? When you see somebody out there that you know it's your neighbor, and, uh, you know, do you, do you share the lamb with them? You work at work. Do you share the lamb with the people around you? You notice that lamb? It tossed down through there. It had to be a male lamb. You see that thing? It had to be a male lamb. A male. And they kept it to the 14th day of the month. That's the day Jesus Christ was crucified. He was crucified on the 14th day of the month. What you have here is the gospel according to Exodus that Israel coming out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12 is a picture of Christ's death delivering you and me out of Egypt, the world system. They got out by a lamb. You and I got out by a lamb. Look at verse 6. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it. In the evening, at 6 o'clock, that's when he died on the cross. When he said, I, my, my father, into my, and I, and I, spirit, I commend, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And he died and he gave up the ghost. It was six o'clock on the 14th day. Whoever wrote that saw something coming that was going to be the salvation of the world. It says without spot. It has to be a male lamb without spot, without blemish. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 19, that we're not redeemed with corruptible things as a silver or gold or the vain traditions from your father, but with the blood, but with the precious blood of Christ without blemish and without spot. Look at verse 7 and 8. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts of the upper door post of the house wherein you eat it. And he says down there in verse 8, And they shall eat the fire in that night, roast with fire, unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall he eat it. Now here's what they did. They killed the lamb, a male lamb, without blemish, 
on the four, kept it up to the 14th day of the month. They couldn't kill it on the 13th and keep it over. They had to kill it on the 14th. Why? Because that's the day your lamb died. It had to be a male without spot, without blemish. And then they took that blood and on the door, and on the door, they took that blood and they put blood over here, blood over there, and blood over there. Now, what in the world is the significance of that? Why did they put blood on this side post, on this side post, and the top of it? I'll tell you why. Because down the line, 3,600 years, on Calvary's mountain, on Calvary's cross, there was two thieves, and then there was the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, you know why you got, you got one over here? One thief, one over here, second thief, and you got one on top. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was numbered with the transgressors, wasn't he? But he's higher than they are. He's deity. Oh, the gospel according to Exodus. Look at verse 8. Roast with fire. No water on it. Bitter herbs. Picture the bitterness of Christ's death. Christ cries out on the cross in verse 9. I, I thirst. I thirst. And so he says, no water on that sacrifice. Notice, they have to eat it with unleavened bread. You know why? Because leaven's a picture of false doctrine, bad teaching. And when they do this, this Passover lamb with all the things that go with it, everything in this story means something. So they can't have any leaven. No false doctrine. It's got to be pure. Look at verse 10. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remain of it until the morning shall be burnt with fire. Nothing remains. A complete, total, complete sacrifice like Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10 lays out. Now what you have here is a picture of how you and I got saved in every aspect. Look down there at verse 13. I love it. We got a song in our hymnals. We sing. When I see the blood. When I see the blood. When I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. You know what the word Passover means? It means that when God came down to execute judgment on, on Egypt, when he came down to destroy them and to kill them that didn't have the blood on the door, when he saw the blood on the house, when he saw the blood on the door, the Bible says he passed over them. The judgment didn't fall. He passed over them. So it's called the Passover. And let me tell you something. Again, God's judgment is going to come. This nation is not going to escape the judgment of God. The judgment of God is going to fall on this nation and it's going to fall on this world. And I'll tell you something, if you can't answer that question that I asked at the beginning, let me give you some good advice. You better get the blood on the door. That when he comes, he passes over you. And I love the fact that it says, upon their house. How about it, moms and dads? Are your kids saved? Are they living for God the way they should? Are you living that systematic dream world that you carry around all your life? And they're going to die and split hell wide open because you don't have the blood on the house. I'm telling you, this thing in every aspect of it. He says, when I see the blood. You know, I have people, you're going to talk to people all the time. And they're going to say, well, I think you got to be baptized to go to heaven. I think you got to join a church. I think you got to get a good life. And I, I guess they must have read that wrong. I guess it says there, when I see your baptism. Is that what it said? Or I guess it maybe it said, when I see your church membership certificate. Or I guess it maybe it really said, when I see your good works. No, it said, when I see the blood. The blood. The blood. The blood. Now, if I would go out here this afternoon at KCI International Airport, and I'd walk up there, and I'd go up to the woman, and uh, I'd, say, uh, I'd say, I'd like to get on this plane. She said, well, the plane sold out. And I said, well, I may be, but I need to get on this plane. She says, I'm sorry, Mr. Alexander, we don't have any tickets. We're overbooked. 
And I said, well, I just watched you put five people on that plane. She says, yeah, but they have tickets. They have reservations. You don't have a ticket. And I said, well, what's that got to do with it? You let five, that place is filled up with people. Well, let me tell you something. I know that one guy. If you knew what I knew about that guy right there, you wouldn't let him on that plane. She says, I don't care anything about him. He had a ticket. Yeah, but he does this. He's a liar and he cheats in business and he does that. She says, I don't care, Mr. Alexander. He had a ticket. Do you have a ticket? No. Then you can't get on the plane. Now, is there anybody here that doesn't understand that basic, simple illustration? When you get to heaven, when you try to go to heaven, it's going to be about the blood. If it's on the door, you go in. If it's not on the door, you don't go in. No ticket, no airplane ride. No blood, no heaven. What is so complicated about that? When I see the blood, not the baptism, not your church membership, when I see the blood. And then I got to get this before we move on here. Look at verse 3, lamb. Verse 4, lamb. Verse 5, lamb. Lamb, 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 lamb. There must have been 600,000 lambs killed that night. At least. Why doesn't it ever say lambs? Why in this whole story as he breaks this thing down, talking about probably 600, 800,000 male lambs that were killed that night, why does he never use the plural and he always uses a single and he keeps talking about a lamb singer? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because it signifies to me and should to you that there's one lamb. There's one lamb. There is one lamb that has enough atonement in its blood for a hundred million people. So it's lamb. But don't just get a lamb. Get the lamb. And don't just look at the lamb. Make it your lamb. Now watch, here it comes. Four things. Four things about our salvation pictured in Exodus chapter 12. And the one we want to focus on is, 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 is your feet. But we're going to have to look at all four of them. Gospel according to Exodus. This is at the day of salvation now. Next week we're going to look at beyond salvation at the second great aspect. But right now we're talking about the day you got saved. That aspect of your feet. Now he comes down through there and he says this. Verse 11. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girt, your shoes on your feet your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now the first thing he says there, and you want to note these down, uh, loins girt, girded. Then he says the shoes on your feet, staff in your hand, and then you eat it in haste. Now let's put these four concepts into perspective for us. We already know now have laid a good foundation of Exodus chapter 12. We know the typology of the pictures and what it represents. Now let's take these four things, and this is where we're going to focus for the rest of our morning. Let's focus on these things. i got six hours left, so we got plenty of time. Let's focus on where we're at. Now, the first, and I'm not going to put them in the order that they are. I'm going to bring them in the order that I want to preach to them to you and that I can build this thing. So the first one we talk about here is he says this. you got to eat it in haste. You know what he's saying? You know what he's talking about, this sacrifice, <clears throat> this Passover lamb that's bringing them out of Egypt? And he's telling them that, that he's telling them that you eat it in haste. You know what that tells me? That tells me you can't get saved too quickly. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1 says, Boat not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You know, I, people are wild, man. I'll tell you what. I've dealt with people for the last 35, 36 years of my life in every scenario. 
I've witnessed to people. I've talked to lost people. And people, I, I just, I just it, it never ceases to amaze me how people will put off the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I don't think after 36 years in the ministry and working with people, I don't think it's the things that you do that sends you to hell. I think it's the one thing you don't do, the sin of omission. You know what the sin of omission is that'll send you? It's not all the things that you do that sends you to hell. It's the one thing that you don't do. You don't trust Christ as your own personal Savior. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. You know, there's four great men in the Bible that lost men that die and go to hell as far as we know. And I think, per personally, when you look at these four guys, they, they, they show you exactly where you're at in dealing with people today. But the Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 14, it says, But what is your life but a vapor that appeareth a little while and fadeth away? You know, over there in, uh, in, in the passage we're in, in Exodus, in the early part, Moses goes in before Pharaoh. And Moses, and Moses, when he goes in, he's done all these plagues. Pharaoh's seen some unbelievable things that he could not explain. And they're, they're things that only can be done supernaturally by the God Moses is talking about. He has suffered incredible agony. They've had boils. They've had their homes burned up. They've had thousands and millions of frogs in their world. They've had all kinds of things. Everything has died. The water's turned to blood. Fire's fallen from heaven. And he stands there and Moses says, are you going to let the people of God go? Now that's the equivalent of you witnessing to somebody who's lost, who has, has their life is a disaster. And instead of saying, yes, I will, you know what Pharaoh says? Tomorrow. I'll let him go tomorrow. You know what happens with an unsaved man tomorrows when he rejects the salvation of today? His tomorrows become yesterdays, and he never gets saved. Incredible. I think over there in the book of Acts, when old Paul in Acts chapter 26 is up against King Agrippa, and he's laying it out and talking to him, and he's trying, and one of the greatest witnessing scenarios you're ever going to find anywhere in the Bible. And he's laying it out to an unsaved, heathen, Roman King Agrippa who is just as far away. And Paul had made such a dent in him. He'd seen the difference. He knew there was nothing wrong with Paul. He knew he should have been there. And Paul's defense is a brilliant defense. And King Agrippa comes down to that and he says to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. We have one of those songs in our hymnals. Almost persuaded, almost persuaded, but lost. I think of Pontius Pilate over there in John chapter 18. I, 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 think, I think of him. Here's a guy that was an absolute coward. And he's faced that thing. He said about Jesus Christ when he was had him, I find no fault in this man. But he could not have the courage because he was afraid. You know, fear's a big deal. I remember preaching one time down in Bridgeport, Ohio. This has been, Lord knows, this has been years ago. And I was just a young kid back then, and I didn't have a lot of finesse, and I didn't, I, I just, I had one speed. That was get up, open up, and don't shut up. And I just <laughs> let them have it, you know. And I've learned to keep my cool a little bit better. But I just, I preached a revival for five nights. And down in the front row every night was an Army first sergeant. And, I, and I've always been drawn to military men, and I kind of took a shine to this guy and talked to him afterward, never got personal with him. But he came every night. And every night, every night, when I gave the invitation, he come to the place where he just, he just shook. He sweated like he was in the Sahara Desert. 
And he just literally shook with his head down. And I knew he was lost. He knew he was lost. And I'm looking at this guy, and I mean, he's got a CIB. He's got a parachute jump wing. I mean, the, his chest looked like an Army-Navy store. He had everything on it. He'd been in Vietnam. He'd been in Korea. He'd been everywhere. And about the fourth, fifth, and the last night of the revival, I gave the invitation, and I mean, he was sweating bullets. And he finally broke, got up, came down, and got saved. I went over to him afterwards, and I said, Sarge, I said, I got to ask you a question. I said, I am glad you're saved. Praise the Lord. He's blubbering all over the place, you know. And then he said, he said I said, well, I got to ask you, what took you so long? And he said, well, Brother Bob, he said, I'll tell you. He said, I charged machine gun nests, and I took out sniper nests, and he said, I walked point on patrol, and he said, I did all those things. I've been in three wars, but I got to tell you the truth. He said, getting up and walking down that aisle in front of all those kids and all those women and children just scared me to death. And went, you know, like that. Fear. I'm thinking to myself, this guy's been in three wars, ten wars, five wars, fought everybody. We would probably killed 100,000 people, and he's afraid to get up and come down and take a stand for God. Fear. That's what old Pilate had. He says, I find no fault in him, but he couldn't let him go. Couldn't let him go. You know the other, the fourth man? The sergeant was one of the four. The fourth man in the Bible is Felix. Over there in Acts chapter 24. Paul puts it to him. And boy, when Paul puts it to him, and he finally is faced with a decision that many of people have to be faced with, you know what he says? He tries the other avenue. He says, well, it's not convenient for me right now. Not convenient. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Psalms 90 says, the days of our years are three score and ten. Verse 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Because Psalms 102 verse 11 says, my days are like a shadow that declineth, I am withered like grass. And my friend, there is two urgencies when it comes to salvation. If you're here this morning and you can't answer that question, then the urgency is for you to be saved. If you are saved here this morning and you can answer that question in an affirmative, then the urgency for you is the salvation of others that God puts in your life. Remember Philip, a little guy, Acts chapter 8? When God said, go join the man of this chariot, what did he do? He ran. He made haste. There's an urgency of our hour. I heard an old preacher one time, this has been 30 years ago, preaching a great message. And he was talking about the devil's plan. And he said this. He said, someplace long before we were ever find ourselves in the situation we were in, when the devil was, was trying to put a plan together to destroy the world and mankind, he got all of his demonic hordes together, and they had a great conference. And the devil laid out to his henchmen that he was looking for a plan and they needed to help him to develop a plan that would be a surefire plan to ensure the damnation and the ruination of planet Earth. The place got quiet as all the demonic hordes thought. One moment, one of them raised his hand and he says, I've got a great idea, Master. He says, let's propagate the idea that there's no God. And everybody broke out into applause and screaming and yelling and thought that was a great idea. The old devil thought for a minute and he said, no, that'll never work. God's hand is in everything that he created. You can't look at the stars. You can't look at this. You can't look at the moon. You can't look at the sun. You can't look at the creation and not see God. That won't work. So they thought for a moment more. <clears throat> Another one raised his hand and said, I got the answer. Let's propagate the idea that there's no heaven. 
Devil thought about that for a moment as they all went crazy thinking that was a great idea. And he said, no, that'll never work. <clears throat> he said, there's too many passages in the Bible that talk about heaven. And when people have a loved one that they lose, they want this idea that there's some place that they can go and meet again. No, nah, that'll never work. Well, they went back and they thought some more. <clears throat> Somebody come up and said, I've got the grand idea. Let's propagate the idea that there's no place called hell. And they went crazy, and the devil smiled in a minute, thought for a minute, because he's thinking of his Jehovah Witnesses buddies now, you know, he's going to get them to help him out. And he thought, and he says, you know, that won't work either. Said, the problem with that is, 18 times in the New Testament, Jesus himself spoke on hell. And then you got Luke chapter 16. What are we going to do with that? No, that won't work. And the place fell quiet. The devil thought. All the hordes of hell thought. Suddenly the devil looked up at his crowd and he snapped his finger and he says, I got it. I got it. We can't tell them there's no God. We can't propagate the idea there's no heaven. We'll never convince them that there's not a hell. But we can convince them there's no hurry. There's no hurry. You've got all the time in your life. I talk with young people. Young people, they feel like they're invincible, don't they? They feel like they can live their life forever, and they miss the fact that the first person did, died in the Bible was a young man, Genesis 5.5. I'm telling you, boast not thyself of tomorrow. Bible says, eat it in haste, the Lord's Passover. Get it inside you. Get it on you. Get the blood on the door before God's judgment comes to you. Then he says in verse 11, and thus shall you eat it with your loins girt. Now what a great concept because that represents your walk. And you walk on your feet. But you and I walk on our feet by the strength in our loins. You know, the day you were born physically, you began to grow. Slowly. But every day. You probably couldn't measure it. You obviously couldn't see it. You know, it's like I, I, I see people that I haven't seen for 15 years, and I remember them in my mind the last time I saw them, they were five years old. Now 15 years later, they're 20 years old. In my mind, they're still little kids because I was absent for that long, and they grew up. You know, when we're together all the time, you know, we don't look different. But if we were absent for two or three years and come back, we'd look different. Things change. We grow. Your kids grow. There isn't a day that your kid isn't growing. There isn't a day... Now, I know you come to a point after a while where you stop growing up. <laughs> we start growing out. <laughs> you know, that goes. I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> we all stop growing up outwardly. But when you stop growing up outwardly, you should still stop growing inwardly. There should be a never day in your life that you don't grow inwardly. In your physical life, you grow up to a point that you don't grow anymore. But you never should stop growing inwardly. And, of course, that's the whole key to your walk with God. When you get saved, the key to your walk with God is your feet. And the key to your feet is your loins. That's why he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, loins girt about with truth, your spiritual strength. The principles of the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be ye sober and hope, to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the book of Revelation. That simply means the more God reveals himself to you, the more you grow. You know, I think my favorite character in the Old Testament as far as my model for my Christian life and my walk is Enoch. Bible says that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. I can't imagine 
And Enoch had God's full attention because if you know anything about the Bible, all the world was wicked back then, so God didn't have to spend a lot of time with other people. It was Enoch for 300 years. For 300 years. I can't imagine. I've walked with God since, since 1972, 71. I can't imagine a walk of 300 years. I can't imagine every day being with God, walking with 300 years. Though It's just incredible. And God and Enoch spent time together every day. I, I heard the old story years ago, and I believe it's true. No, it's not in the Bible, but I believe it. I believe it. I heard an old preacher say one time that every day God came down and spent with Enoch. You know, the Bible says Enoch walked with God for 300 years, and Enoch was not, for God took him. God came down and just took Enoch out, took him to heaven with him. I mean, they wanted a day, and they said, where's Enoch? Oh, he's gone. Where'd he go? Well, he was out with the Lord walking back there. I don't see either one of them. Never saw him again. You know how it worked? They were out there walking arm in arm, you know, and the Lord was spelling them all things in the Bible. And he said, you know, I got an idea. I've been coming down and spending a day with you for 300 years now. I got an idea. Today, why don't we go spend a day up in heaven together? Enoch said, you're kidding me. The Lord said, no, I've been down here for 300 years we, every day. I said, today, you come up to heaven with me. Enoch said, that's a deal. So the Bible says that Enoch was not. God took him to heaven for a day, got up there for a day, and found out there was no night. Been there ever since. <laughs> I thought it was funny when I heard it. I, <laughs> the more God reveals himself to you, the more you grow in grace. The more you strengthen your loins. I don't care if it's football, basketball, soccer, whatever it is. Your strength's in here. And if strength in here affects your feet. And it's just that simple. It's just that simple. Now look at the next thing. Working our way down to the feet. But you've got to see these. Verse 11 on your staff in your hand. You ever notice that Israel was a, a nation of shepherds? They kept sheep. And you're going to come through the early part of Genesis when they're getting ready to go down in Egypt. You're going to find a term called the abomination of the Egyptians. Genesis chapter 47, verses 33 through 34, and then a little bit later on, Genesis chapter 43, verse 32. Uh, we'll go, I'm, going to, I'm going to read you 47, but you need to put them both down. It says this. And it shall come to pass when Pharaoh shall call you and say, What is your occupation? That you say, Thy servant's trade hath been about cattle from our youth even unto now, both we and also our father, that we may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd, here it is, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Now that's a little story in there where they didn't quite tell him the truth. Because the abomination of the Egyptians was the fact that they hated anybody who kept sheep. Now, let me tell you historically why that is. Because they were people of cattle, the Egyptians. They raised cattle. Cattle farmers and sheep farmers have never gotten along. And the reason is over the grazing ground. You see, a sheep, when he eats the grass, he eats it so far down to the grass, the bottom, there's nothing left. So when you feed the, graze the sheep, there's nothing for the cattle to eat. And, uh, you know, so they, they hate them because they, they ate up all the pasture land. In the West, in the 1800s, they killed people. They fought wars over it. But in, in Egypt, that was a thing. So the, 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 the Israelites who were shepherds, they weren't allowed to, they, 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 they said, when he asks you what your occupation is, tell him you raise cattle because if you tell him we're sheep, because raising sheep is an abomination of the Egyptians. They hate us for it and they'll kill us for it. Now, that's the historical reason. Now, the doctrine or the inspirational reason, you've got to figure it out by now. You know what? Egypt's the type of the world. You know why the world's going to hate you? Because we're shepherds and we have sheep. We win people to Christ. 
we're shepherds. We're, we, we, we take care of God's flock. And the world is going to hate us just like they hated them. Because of the fact that Egyptian hated sheep and shepherds, and Egypt's a type of the world. And boy, Bible Christianity is, is taking care of uh, the great shepherd sheep, and they're going to hate us because of our shepherd, the bishop of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that we're his sheep. It's just that simple. You know, I don't know about you. He says, when they asked your occupation, there's a great psychology in there. He says, uh, when they asked your occupation, don't tell them they're really a shepherd. Now, some people would say, well, why did he tell them the lie? Well, I don't, I, he's not really telling them the lie. That's one of those places in there that fits into the verses in uh, New Testament which says, wiser serpent, but harmless as dove, you know. Sometimes three serpents to one dove. You've got to balance it out. I'll tell you this. If I'm on an airplane flying someplace, and I don't fly anymore, uh, but uh, if I, and I used to fly, you know how it is. You've got an eight-hour flight or a four-hour flight. You're sitting next to me. Sooner or later, somebody's going to break up a conversation, you know. I've had people look over to me and say, what's your occupation? I never tell them I'm a pastor. That's not because I'm ashamed of a pastor, being a pastor. I mean, if I had my way, I'd just straddle him right on the sheet and preach to him the whole time he's down there. It wouldn't bother me. See? And he, he wouldn't go to the bathroom until he got saved. I'd fix him. I'd get him. I know, my, I know the ways of persuasion. I never tell him that. I always say, I always say something else. I, and I, you know, I say, well, I'm a, I'm a counselor, you know, or I'm a historian. or I never say I'm a pastor. And I'll tell you why. And you need to listen to, listen, listen to this and learn. Because I know already, just like the Egyptians did, the world has a mental picture of what a preacher is. They really do. Most pastors are fat. Most pastors are lazy. Most pastors are wimpy. I mean, in most churches, you shake the guy's hand like picking up a dead fish. I mean, I'm just telling you, I've been around them all my life. I mean, a great joke in pastors is we know he's on a level. How do you know? Because he's got the bubble in the middle. I mean, that's, that's the standard joke. I mean... They're effeminate, they're prissy, they're political, and they're all about money. They're walking around talking about peace, peace, peace with one hand, the other hand they got in your wallet. I mean, it's, it, it, they walk around saying it's all get along, and they can't get along with anybody. And the bottom line with this, you know, am I Christ from the day I started? I never fit that mold in any way, shape, or form. All right, but if I told a guy, was, one time I did tell a guy, he about had a heart attack. You're a pastor, you're a preacher. You know, most people would think, boy, I don't look the part. I don't want to look the part. I don't want to look for you. You know what I want to be? I want to be just a normal guy who got saved by the blood of the Lamb put on my door. And the fact that I'm a pastor has nothing to do with the fact that I'm just a red-blooded male just like you. I'll run as fast as you do. I'll play football with you. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll outshoot you. I'll eat you. I'll drink you. And the whole nine yards. So there we are. See? I didn't mean to. I'll, I'll drink your part. I just threw that in there for a little color. I don't fit in any of those more. I'm like that new movie come out where the guy says, are you a secret agent? And he says, yeah. I says, what's your, he said, I'm 0014. He said, well, why aren't you 007? He said, because I'm twice as good. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. You're, we've got to take care of the sheep. He's the shepherd. And the world's going to hate you just like they hated Israel. You better play at the game smarter than they are. Bible says wiser than your enemies. You know why? Because they're always with you, Psalm 119. Now the second part of this thing in verse 11, it says this, and your staff in your hand. Now that staff there is what we call a shepherd's crook. And it's one of those staff that comes up, it's got like a question mark on the end of it. And in uh, shepherding, uh, that crook was a staff, was used for two reasons. The first reason was to get lost sheep out of places they shouldn't be. And the second thing was it was long enough to use as a formidable weapon to fend off wild animals that were after the sheep. And without a doubt, 
knowing the history of the time, it was the sheep's, it was a shepherd's most important tool. And uh, in the New Testament, John chapter 10 is the great chapter on shepherding and sheep, Christ being the great shepherd and us being the sheep. And I'll tell you, one of the highlights of my life, and I truly mean this, was a number of years ago I was preaching a revival out in Montana. And Montana has some of the most incredible ranches that you have ever seen. I'm talking about six, seven hundred thousand acres. I'm talking about when they go out to take care of the cattle or the sheep or whatever, they go out two or three days to get there. I mean, it's, it's, they ride horses, it's just like it was. And I got to spend the day and have lunch with a sheep farmer and his wife. And they were two of the nicest people. I love the Lord. And I'll tell you what, I learned more that afternoon about me and about dealing with people by just talking to this guy once I understood that sheep in the Bible are likened to Christians. He told me sheep are the dumbest animals alive. <laughs> of all the animals God created, sheep are the dumbest. And I'm sitting there just listening. I asked him, I said, could you teach me some things about sheep? And he said, well, I'll tell you, first of all, sheep are the dumbest animals you ever met in your life. And he said, they totally dependent on the shepherd. I said, amen. He said, what would you say? I said, nothing. <laughs> he says, half my day is finding lost sheep. I said, how do they get lost? He says, they get curious. They look for things. They see something out of the ordinary. They're curious, so they go places where they shouldn't, and they get in trouble. I said, amen. He said, what did you say? I said, nothing. <laughs> As I said, I'll tell you how else they get lost. They get looking for greener pastures and instead of being satisfied with where they're eating. He said, as long as they stay with the flock, they're okay, but it's when they wander from the shepherd uh, that uh, they get into trouble. And the farther they get away, the more trouble they get in. And then he said, we got to take them down here and we got to shear them up here and then next month, too bad you're not here for that. And I thought to myself, wow, what a perfect picture. The sheep belong to the shepherd and every year they give him their wool. Living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12. Then they grow more wool again, they give it to the shepherd the next year. Remember that thing back there on New Year's Eve in Proverbs, or in, uh, in uh, uh, we went through Song of Solomon, I connected to Proverbs chapter 31 where the virtuous woman works with the wool in her hands. Wow. I asked him, I said, or he told me, he said, you know what? He said, they're kind of a weird group of animals. He says, when they, you can always tell when they start getting sick. And I said, how is that? He said, well, when they start getting sick, they don't follow the shepherd anymore. I said, really? He says, yeah, they kind of leave the flock, and that's when they get into trouble because they get out of the safety of the flock, and then they get picked off. And he says, when you see a group of them all together over there, he says, uh, maybe three or four of them, out of a, and the flock's over here and they're over here, that's always a sign that those three sheep are sick because sheep sick won't stay with the flock. And I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, they won't. And I said, Amen. Because the first time you and I get spiritually sick, you know, the first thing we want to do? Quit coming to church, didn't they? Drop Bible study. Find some other excuse, some other reason. And then, as the old verse says, birds of a feather flock together. Pretty soon, we're having this and doing that. Somebody else is having a group over here and doing this and doing that. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. He says, sheep are famous for getting into situations they can't get out of. And then the shepherd has to come and get them. I said, amen. You know what the greatest lesson was that day? See, I was like most of God's people. I thought that I was a shepherd. And I really analyzed this thing once I was there. Because I was under the, I heard guys all my life, you know, well, you're the shepherd of the flock and all those things. And I, so I thought to myself, you know, and I remember after sitting that afternoon, I went back to my, in my hotel room that night and looked at my Bible. And I looked up the word shepherd in the New Testament. There's no word of shepherd in Paul's preaching anywhere in his books. 
you only find the word shepherd three times and it has nothing to do with the church. And I thought to myself, wow. Because the greatest afternoon was sitting on that old feeding cart watching five or six hundred sheep and watch the sheepdogs work. The greatest, smartest animals in the world, besides Buddy and Daisy, the greatest, smartest animals in the world are sheepdogs. I could not believe it. They had four sheepdogs. And that four dogs automatically, like they were programmed, shat around the circumference of those sheep. When the sheep would start to stray out, that dog would go over and bark and run him back. When he'd come over there and the sheep would start to get a little afraid or something would happen in the middle and they'd start to move out, two dogs would run in and bark and, and herd them right back into that thing. Those dogs were on a 24 vigil of those sheep. And you know what? When a sheep wouldn't come in there, that was great. I watched it. I couldn't believe it. When a sheep wouldn't get back in, the guy said, watch this. The dog would go up and bite the sheep on his legs, but he wouldn't. You know how you play with your dog and he puts his hand in your mouth, but he doesn't chomp down on it with 6,000 pounds per square inch? He just, he just gets it and you know he's playing? Well, that dog would just nip at their heels to get them back in, but he wouldn't really bite them. And he said, yeah, she says, those dogs, he says, I really don't have to do the work. He says, them dogs, I exactly leave them for two, three. In fact, I'm coming to church tonight. And he said, I don't have to worry about it because anything that comes in there with those four dogs, not one thing will come into those uh, and hurt those sheep because those dogs protect the sheep. I went away that night and my whole, my whole ministry was revolutionized because I realized my role. My role, I thought I was a shepherd. He's the shepherd, I'm just a sheepdog. That's my job. My job is to run around the park and bark at you. <laughs> and when you get out of line, come around and chase you back in. When you don't get around on Sunday morning, sometimes I nibble at you a little bit to get you back in line, see? I'm a sheepdog. It revolutionized my whole ministry. Ow! I mean, I'm ready to go. Like, I got the two smartest dogs in the world. I asked Buddy, I said, Buddy, what's on the roof? What's on top of the house? He goes, roof, roof. <laughs> Pretty good. Asked Daisy, Daisy, what's on that tree? Bark, bark. Good dog, man. Bark. I'm with him. Then the last thing, here we come. This is what I've been waiting for. This is what you've been waiting for. Maybe not, but you're going to get it anyhow. Doesn't matter. Verse 11, shoes on your feet. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15 says, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. You ever stop and think at any one time, and I thought about this all week when I put this together. In fact, I had to, had to muster the courage but went up in my own closet, which is a, quite an endeavor in itself. You wonder how many pairs of shoes you have? I, I, I hate to even say this. I used to tell my kids, I said, because uh, uh, they, 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 my kids would have shoes everywhere, you know. And I, they always say, I'd like to get a new pair of shoes. So I'd always sit them down telling a story about, you know, I once cried because I had no shoes. Then I saw a man who had no feet, you know. It didn't work with them. They said, okay, he didn't have any feet, but I do. I need a pair of shoes. So I'm going to have to. I'm going to write out the window. <clears throat> but I looked in my big box. I got a big cardboard box up there. I got nine pairs of gym shoes. I got running shoes. I got dress shoes. I got six pairs of combat boots, just in case. I have casual shoes. I have flip-flops. I have sandals that I never wear. I have work shoes. I have hiking shoes. I've seen people who have dancing shoes. I saw people, women, they have high heels. They have low heels. They have pumps, whatever those are. And they have flat soles. And, I mean, I mean, and then you got, on top of that, it just isn't shoes. It's the color coordinate to go with your dress. Somebody, a woman, a wife will say, well, I got a new pair of shoes. What? You got 9,000 pairs, but they don't match my dress. <laughs> Hello? Change the dress. Find another color with what you got. 
No, no, we couldn't do that. We buy more shoes. There's a woman in our church, and I won't mention her name, but she has 300 pairs of shoes. We kid her about it all the time. 300 pairs of shoes. And I wouldn't say her name because I wouldn't want to embarrass Pam Busquette for anything in the world, but she has 300 pairs of shoes. You go to aerobics class, you get shoes, high impact, low impact. Some of them look like they have no impact, you know, I don't know. I mean, even race car drivers, you know they wear special shoes, don't they, Michael, huh? Yeah, I bought a pair. I thought it'd make me run faster. It doesn't, it's just my feet hurt more now, that's all. But you play sports, you got baseball, you got softball, you got basketball, you got cowboy boots. I mean, it's a science. He says, shoes on your feet. Every, you're a Christian here this morning and you just got saved, you only need three pairs of shoes. That's all you need. You can go home and throw the rest of them away. Spiritually speaking, when it says shoes on your feet here, this is a picture of somebody that just got saved. If you're just saved this morning, I can, I can, I can sum up what you've got to do in your life by three pairs of shoes you need to have. You know the first pair of shoes you need to have? You need to get you a good pair of running shoes. You do. Now, not to run from God, but to run for God. Because you need to make haste. So you need a pair of running shoes. So I'm telling you, when I take you in Thursday night Bible study or I work with you one-on-one, I'm looking at you as, a, as somebody who just got saved. I'm trying to fit you for these three pairs of shoes. Everything I preach, everything I do, everything I lay out is to get you ready to make haste. Like Philip ran when God heard him. You need a pair of running shoes. Then I'll tell you the next thing you need is you need a pair of combat boots. High top combat boots to support your ankle. Because the more weight you put on your loins of strength, the more you're going to have to strengthen your ankle. So you get your pair of 10 inch high tops. Corcoran's would be nice. Jump boots. Look really good when you spit shine them up. But you need a pair of combat boots. You know why? Because you need to get ready to go into warfare, Ephesians chapter 6. You're a soldier for Jesus Christ. He's called you. He's the captain of your salvation. He's called you to be a soldier. So you need a pair of running shoes. And then you need a pair of combat boots. Because you're going to be in a warfare. Then the third pair of boots you need, and it's all you need. You need running shoes, combat boots, then you need a pair of work boots. Now may I suggest that these work boots, they're for the ministry, see? The work of the ministry, Ephesians 4. May I suggest that when you buy your work boots, get them with steel toes in them. Because there are going to be people stepping on your toes a lot. People are going to be stepping all over your toes, and that hurts, and don't take it personal. So get you some steel toes in them. That's all you need. And if you just got saved, or you do get saved, or whenever you get saved, I suggest that you come over and see me, and I'll fit you for them. I'll get you a pair of running shoes. I'll get you fitted into a pair of combat boots, and I'll get you a pair of work shoes, work boots. And we'll get you going. Now, next week, I'm going to show you the second aspect of defeat after salvation, where you're preparing yourself in preparation. But listen, I mean, I'm telling you. Your feet's important. I mean, when somebody boxes, it's not, you don't, you don't, it's, it's in his feet. You ever watch a great football player running back or somebody that catches the ball? It's, he dances in his feet. A basketball player, it's in his feet. A soccer, it's in his feet. And I'm telling you right now, for a Christian that you just got saved, the key to your success is obviously to strengthen your loins, but to strengthen your loins depends on your feet. Because it's the feet that takes you where God wants you to go, and you've got to get make haste, you've got to be ready to run it, you've got to be able to fight it, and you've got to be able to do the work. And that's just the way it is.
You know, I think about the nation of Israel. I mean, when you stop to think about you, you know, God saved you for a reason, a purpose, has a plan for you, a job for you, something that he wants you to do, someplace he wants you to go. Oh, that night so many hundreds of years ago, when God brought them out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, they're getting all ready to go, and they're putting the blood on the door, and they're getting everything ready. But you know what? In God's mind, he had a plan for them. God had a purpose. God had some place he was going to take them, and that night when they put the blood on the door, they ate it in haste. They got their staff in their hands, and they got their shoes on their feet. God started them on a journey. And the day you got saved, God wants you to get your shoes on your feet. You started the shoes on your feet. You started a journey. You see, repentance, repentance isn't a thing where, we talked about repentance is where you turn direction, but repentance never means you stop. It just means you go in another direction. First reference of the, of the Spirit of God found is in Genesis chapter 1, verse, I think it's verse 4. And it says, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. You realize that the first time you find the Spirit of God in the Bible and it's moving and it never stops and it goes through the whole Bible. It never stops. It goes into motion there and it never ends out through eternity. And yet the Bible gives you the direction it goes. You can actually follow it down through history, east to west. It's where everything goes. Just as the Spirit of God never quits moving, you and I never quit moving. God saved you to go on a journey. Something He wants you to do. The place where you can get into your life where you fulfill God's plan. And oh yes, hey, I understand. They had some issues, and so will you. They struggled through some problems, and so will you. They had some real struggles, so will you and I. They had some really bad times, didn't they? Yes, we do. But they got to the promised land, and God got them to the greatest point in their life when God was ready to fulfill His plan. You see, but you have to get your shoes on your feet. You have to get your staff in your hand. You have to make haste. You have to understand that the Lord's Passover and get the blood on the door of your house. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have secured thee. That means help or delivered. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Every head bowed and every eye closed.